And I also help to resource the mission coordinating committee. Um, and uh, the, the one person that serves with me, um, I, he, he reports to me. I honestly don't feel like I'm a supervisor, but it's Mike McNamara. And I believe Mike has actually been here. Do you, have you met Mike? Um, I think he met with a couple of folks here at this church. So, um, but he's our mission specialist. One of the reasons why I was invited to come is because it's stewardship, and one of the things that your congregation is going to be doing is deciding whether or not you're going to fund the presbytery in addition to your per capita spending. Now, per capita um, is the mandatory, everyone says tax, I like to get away from that word, <laughs> assessment um, that applies to every single person who's a member of your church from confirmation class all the way on up. And that money goes to both um, uh, the General Assembly and Synod, and it also goes to support, hello, <laughs> it also goes to support uh, the presbytery. And what that money does is it pays for all of our fiduciary kinds of responsibilities. So it pays for working with pastors and churches in transition, um, it works um, when we have new candidates coming forward. If there's any kind of disagreement within the churches, um, uh, that goes to what's called our PJC, or Permanent Judicial Commission. It pays for that. So it, that per capita pays for a, a wide assortment of mandatory things. And then there's all the other stuff. And that stuff gets funded in two ways. Um, the one way is through uh, an endowment that we have, and that endowment is primarily from uh, folks who have given money to the Presbytery or from churches that have closed. Um, we've got a, a rather large fund that we call the Resurrection Fund. Um, that is from churches that have closed, the buildings have sold, the equity um, has transferred to the Presbytery, and we use that primarily for mission work, almost 99.9% .9 for mission work. It's a way of letting those churches live on right, in, in, in mission. But everything else is paid for through unified mission giving. What does unified mission giving help? Um, two primary areas, church development and mission. In terms of church development, um, it helps with a range of programs that um, I help to facilitate. One of those is the CAT, the Congregational Assessment Tool. Have you done the CAT here? You have not. So let me just talk a little bit about that and, and to give you an idea of, of what that encompasses. Um, the Congregational Assessment Tool has been taken by 40 of our churches at this point, um, so that's almost half. Um, what it does is it, it's, um, it's a survey tool that's been around for 25 years. It helps congregations to assess where they are within themselves and what is their church vitality. We've got a lot of demographic tools that we offer, um, like Mission Insight, that, that can help you with what's going on outside your walls. But this talks about what's inside. And it's fascinating because it helps churches that are in decline to figure out what they might need to do to change. It helps churches that are doing well to figure out what they might do next. Um, it helps churches that are in the midst of a pastoral search because it helps them to understand who they are, and that gives them a, a better understanding of how best to match their new pastor with themselves. So it's used by a variety of churches for a variety of, of ways. Now, what's great about this tool is that it helps people to ask the right questions. 
the worst question a church can ask is, and now what? <laughs> and not have an answer. And so the rest of the programs that come from uh, church development are, are based on a response to that answer. So Unified Mission Giving also funds something called the Next Blessings Program. Um, Next Blessings is a, uh, a group of folks who are gifted and skilled in talking with churches about closure. As you can guess, this is not an easy conversation to have. And so to have people who are actually willing to do this work is an amazing thing. And to have gifted people who are willing to do this work is incredible. And they are willing to go and sit with a session, and sometimes it takes years. But to say, you know what, you're tired, you've been at this for a long time, your external demographics have changed so much, maybe it's time, well done, good and faithful servant. And to find ways of helping them to let go, and also then to make sure that the membership of those churches finds other area churches so that they're just not lost. So that's one of the programs. We go from cradle to grave, as, <laughs> as a friend said. Um, we also have a great program called The Well. And again, this is all funded by Unified Mission. Um, the Well is for churches that are in some decline or are concerned about what's going on and they want to transform. And so it's this great cohort model. And what happens is, is um, right now we've got eight churches in The Well. They meet for about 18 months. We've got a couple of retreats. We do some training. What's wonderful about it is, is that there is built-in accountability. So you have a church that is um, struggling and they decide that they're going to implement a new program. Six weeks later, after they've put those words out there, they're going to meet up with people who heard them say those words. <laughs> and those folks then say, well, so how's it going? How are you? Um, these churches pray for one another. They care for one another, and I believe they are beginning to turn the corner in many of the instances towards greater health, greater vitality. We've also got a program, again, that, that whole answer to the question, what now, what next, called Next Steps. And this is for churches that are doing well. Um, it doesn't make sense for any organizational body to invest all of its resources in failing projects. Those of you who are in business know that that doesn't make any sense at all. And so this is money that is dedicated for those congregations that are vital, who might need one additional staff person or one additional program to push them over to the edge to go from good to great. And so this program, it's another cohort program, it's for three churches, and these churches each receive $20,000 a year that they must match in order to hire a new Christian ed director or a youth person or someone who is skilled in a different form of worship. And so what happens with these, and this is a brand new program, so I'm sort of projecting what will happen, is the same sort of camaraderie. Because whenever you make a significant change, like adding a new staff person, there are also changes that happen within the church. So to have that cohort to sort of manage that, um, we're also assigning a coach to that process to make sure that this money is invested well and that there's follow-through and that what ends up happening is these churches indeed do go from good to great. So like I said, from cradle to grave. We also have uh, new worshiping opportunities. The church is closing churches, but we're also opening new churches as well. Um, 
one of our great success stories, um, we hope, <laughs> is a church in Luckett's. You ever been to Luckett's, Virginia? Okay, so if you go to Point of Rocks and you cross the river and turn left, that's Luckett's. <laughs> um, it is an area that is currently booming. Somebody, some brilliant businessman or woman was out there one day and noticed that all the homes out there were single homes, that there was no um, high density housing, that there were no apartments. And the reason for that is it's all septic. So what they said was, I'm gonna buy up some land, I'm gonna put in my own water treatment plant, and I'm gonna grow a community. So there's hundreds of homes and condos that have arisen on that side of the Potomac, the Virginia side, right on the opposite side of Point of Rocks, or that community. Now why is that important? Because there's a Mark train stop there that just got refurbished. So this is a community that is seeing tremendous growth. And in the midst of this community were two churches, um, one Furnace Mountain and the other Faith Chapel. Sister churches, um, actually the one was the mother to the other, but it was kind of a complex situation. It was the sort of thing that never should have occurred. Um, they had a combined session, they had one pastor until things got crazy and one church didn't like the other pastor and so there's this split, but the session didn't split. I mean, it was, it was a polity nightmare. In the end, Faith Chapel decided to close. The Presbytery took a look at this and said, okay, we could sell the building or we've got all these new homes that are opening. We could do something new. And so that's what we're doing. We're investing money in that new program in, in partnership with General Assembly that has sent $75,000 for refurbishment of the manse and working on the new building. And we've got somebody in there who is a mission developer. His name is Gary Mears. Gary is not a teaching elder, he's a ruling elder. Um, he is very gifted in organizations, he's a consultant, and he and his wife wanted to kind of take it easy in the last few days of, of his, or before his retirement. So they are there and they are working at developing community in that place. And people know where they are. I know, right? Exactly. How is this taking it easy? Well, they've got this thing. There's a, a manse across the street, and um, it's got this wraparound porch. Um, it's not as quaint as it sounds, trust me. I've been in there. Um, but when the porch lights are on, people in the community know they can go someplace, and they can go to talk, they can go to receive a cup of coffee, they can go to pray. And slowly but surely, community is forming there. It will be years before that becomes a worshiping community. So what's happening with the church? Well, that's the manse. The manse is being used for ministry. The church is being turned into a wedding chapel. And in that way, it will be sustainable. The reason why it's actually working as a wedding chapel is because the other thing that's up there that's really growing greatly are vineyards. And there are folks who are basically touting, come here, have your wedding here in the vineyard, and those couples who perhaps are not churched, who want a church wedding, find this wedding chapel as an arrangement that, that works for them. Now, it's not ideal, um, but it will help with the sustainability of that project. And until that church 
becomes a congregation, it will help them to pay the bills until that time. So there's some, some neat, new, innovative ways that, that we're doing some new worshiping stuff. There's a couple of other new worshiping programs that have started over the couple of years, last couple of years. Um, some of those have done well, some of them not. We're trying to take risks, and we're trying to do things in new ways. And again, Unified Mission, Mission helps to pay for those things. Unified Mission also provides equipping grants um, for leaders, and that can be any leader. You don't have to be an elder. Um, leaders, as well as congregations, for things like, you know, we've got one church that um, uh, they, a consultant came in and basically told them that they would never attract any families because their nursery was miserable. And so they invested money in their nursery, and we assisted with that. Um, there's another small congregation that recently had an issue with their sound system. We helped them with that. And these are small grants, um, but they can make a real difference. And it's all part of this whole connectional church. Right? So unified mission giving goes towards that. So that's sort of the congregational development end. Um, along with that are immigrant ministries. Um, we've got uh, nine different immigrant churches that receive funding from the presbytery, otherwise they would not survive. Um, some of those will become chartered churches and become sustainable on their own. Others will not. Um, we've got a small Indo-Pak, um, so Indian Pakistani church that worships out of the Reston church. Um, they will never probably grow to significant size, primarily because there aren't that many folks from that culture who happen to be in that area. But it's an important ministry, um, and it's important for those folks who are there. We've got another congregation, a Mizo church. Do you know where Mizo? Do you know where the Mizo? It's like, I learned so much here. Um, <laughs> it's north of um, Burma um, and, and overlapping into India. It's, it's more of a cultural hill country kind of thing. This Mizo church is an actual congregation. It's not one of my fellowships, so they're chartered. And they've been here in this presbytery for 20 years. And they continue to, to sustain. They are starting to save money to buy their own building. They've been worshiping at the Gaithersburg Church now for those 20 years. And, and although the relationship is really good, they're beginning to feel that maybe it's time to have something of their own. So I will be supporting them as best we can, not so much financially, but with consultants and other folks who can come in and help them to make that move. Um, on any given Sunday here in National Capital Presbytery, there are 12 languages that are spoken. God is worshipped in 12 different languages, which I think is just remarkable. So that's the congregational development side of things. What about the mission? Um, our mission primarily works through two, two agents. Um, the first agent is through mission networks. Um, we have several different mission networks, and networks are formed when seven different congregations come together. And when they come together and become a mission network, they receive funds that they can distribute as they feel best. So we've got, for instance, a global mission network. Um, this particular group supports um, mission workers overseas. Um, they've got this incredible matching program. I don't know if you've been a part of this, whereby if you've got a global mission project that you really you know, have a passion for, they will match your funds up to a certain amount. So your dollar gets doubled um, working through this particular network. 
Um, we've got, within that mission network, there are sub-networks. So there's a, a group that works primarily with uh, Kenya and another group that works primarily with Haiti and another group that, that um, works with um, it's one of our African countries. And it just went. Anyway, um, <laughs> there, there's some excitement around those. Um, it allows folks, oh, there's a Cuban network as well. There, it allows folks to, to interconnect um, and, and to support. Um, Global Mission Network is one of our active networks. They meet um, every other month. Um, it's an exciting meeting. Um, it's open to all. Um, if you're interested, let me know. I'll leave a couple of my cards here so you can get in contact with me. But what's great about it is um, you, you go and you sit down and it's not just a talking head. Um, they bring in people who have done mission work and so you get to hear stories. Um, we help fund some of those stories. So for instance, um, one of the stories uh, comes from uh, the Fairfax Presbyterian Church in Fairfax, Virginia. And they have this group called Middle-Aged Men on a Mission. <laughs> and what the Middle-Aged Men on a Mission do is they go to a Latin American country and they've developed a relationship with this particular group that they go to. And they go there every single summer and they work on building. And they've developed this incredible relationship which has sparked real passion in their home congregation as well. So it's not just helping folks, it's one of those wonderful things where we find it becomes iterative, you know, it, it helps the congregation back home and then, you know, you, you, you funnel more money and, and more relationships and, and it's just been this great thing that's been building. Um, so that's one of the kinds of projects that we help fund as well. Plus global mission. Um, we also um, have other areas that are um, more advocacy oriented. We've got the Earth Care Network, um, and that is a network, again, seven churches or more that come together. Um, they are working on helping to green the presbytery. If you ever go to a presbytery meeting, you will see that there's a heck of a lot less paper floating around. You'll see that the, the, the dishes that are used, um, if they are not the ones that are washed, are the, the ones that are highly biodegradable. They're working at trying to make that at least as green as possible. But they also work with churches. So if you have a church that's interested in, in you know, putting in new lighting, you know, they can help you find consultants. They can also um, help with a small one-time grant that will help cover the costs of, of you know, moving from one form of lighting to another. So that's our Earth Care Network. We've also got an Israel-Palestine Network, which, as you can imagine, probably has very heated conversations. <laughs> important conversations for us to have. Um, they offer all sorts of programs and open spaces and workshops for people to sort of not take one side or the other, but to get an understanding of what that situation is to the best of our abilities. So uh, there's that network. Um, we also support campus ministries, and we've got four campus ministry programs that we help to support, as well as our young adult volunteer program. Are you familiar with our young adult volunteers? Okay, so it's a national program. Um, these are young adults who have uh, completed, um, uh, generally have completed a bachelor's program. So they're in their early 20s up to around 27. And what they do is they volunteer for a year in a variety of different places. So think Peace Corps with a Presbyterian spin. Um, they also have local options and 
Um, we are actually one of the local sites, or one of the, the national sites. Um, we have anywhere between four and six young folk with us every single year, and they do work primarily in D.C. proper. So, um, um, for instance, one of the folks who's there is working with Capitol Hill um, Ministries. Um, another is working with the Pilgrimage. Um, the Pilgrimage is a project through um, Church of the Pilgrims, and what it is is it provides a place for, um, for visiting school groups to come and to stay. So imagine a youth group coming and staying at this church, right? There's cots and showers and things like that. And then they also provide a connection with mission work within D.C. So youth groups would come, they would stay, and then they would go and they would do work at, say, Miriam's Kitchen, which is a, a soup kitchen, or any of the other kinds of projects. Um, so the uh, young adult volunteer works with the staff at that church to help facilitate that program. So we've got these, uh, this year we've got four young people, and if I was up and running I could introduce you to, to them. Um, they are um, dynamic and interesting young folk. Um, it's funny how much younger they get, the older I get. <laughs> Uh, th this year we've got three guys and a gal, um, which is unusual. Usually we have more women than men. Um, and they live together in a house um, that is in an area of D.C. that some might consider challenging. Um, initially, when we decided to do this program, we had a manse that had become available to us in Clarendon, Virginia. Um, our Clarendon uh, area of Arlington. And we brought the national staff in, and they took a look, and they said, wow, this is really nice. This is too nice. <laughs> they said, we want these young people to be in an area where they are challenged, where they can't just jump on the metro, where they're going to actually have to figure out how to get someplace because they're in an area that's underserved. Um, we want a place where the young people um, are going to have to really interact with their neighbors, and their neighbors may not look like them. And so they live in this, this tiny little house, and they are an intentional community. Um, there is a staff person that works part-time with them and assists them. And what ends up happening at the end of the year is, is that these young folk generally become what I've, I've heard termed super Presbyterians. You know, these are people who will be connected to the church in a very significant way for the rest of their lives. Um, nationally, I believe there's 300 young adult volunteers, and again, we have four. I, my numbers may be off. We also have a global program as well. And some of our young adult volunteers go from doing the national program to, to international. We've had a couple that have made that jump, and a number of them end up becoming clergy. That seems to be the other outcome of this program. And again, unified mission helps significantly with this. It doesn't fund the whole program. Um, the youth have to come up with uh, $3,500 to serve, to volunteer for the year. Um, and National also kicks in some money. Um, national be meaning uh, uh, Louisville kicks in some money. Um, but we also help support. So that's pretty much the gamut of what Unified Mission Giving does. Um, that money helps to support two staff people. Um, it's one and a half, myself and Mike McNamara, who's our, our mission specialist. Um, 
the bulk of the money does go towards programming. Our budget is about $800,000. Um, some of that, again, comes from our resurrection fund, but much of it comes from the over and above giving that churches give. Um, so why? I mean, you've got so many different other options as far as where you give money, um, where a church can give money, and I'm sure you do that. Why give to Unified? Um, a couple of reasons. Um, first, we're a connectional church. Um, that program that um, the Covenant Church in Arlington has started with working with day laborers, helping them and, and feeding them, but also providing a worship experience in their language once a week, that wouldn't get funding anywhere else. It only gets funding from sister churches. Um, connectional church, that young adult program, those that YAV program, it's not going to find any kind of funding outside the church, except for the money that the young adults bring themselves as, as a commitment to what they're doing. Um, our immigrant ministries, there is no way that some of these folks could possibly come up with enough funds. I mean, they, most of them do not worship in their own buildings, um, and, and those that do, it's more of a house church scenario. Um, you know, barely scraping by money, not to pay a, uh, an official pastor type full time, but, but just to pay somebody to preach. Again, if it wasn't for sister churches supporting them, they would not exist. So it's that whole connectional piece, right? That's one of the reasons why we do this. The other reason, though, and I, I know I'm sounding a little bit more like a salesperson every day, um, <laughs> is because this is you. You know, all of those programs, you own those. They're an extension of this church, just as they're an extension of every other church in this presbytery. And so when someone asks you, so what is your church doing in regards to race and reconciliation? That's a network that's slowly being formed. But you know, you can say, well, you know, our presbytery is now starting to work on, on having a training program for for new pastors coming into this presbytery about how to talk about race. Um, you know, that's you. You're, you're doing that, not, not some weird other body called the presbytery. You are the presbytery. Um, there are other issues that continue to come up um, that will continue to be funneled through the system and will probably end up on my desk. Um, race and reconciliation is one. Um, how do we, as people of faith, have these conversations that n don't just stop at, at you know, one level, that go much deeper, that, that go to the point of change? Um, again, and as that happens, you, know, you need to know that you have helped that to occur. So I've talked a lot. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to get things up and running. Um, do you have any questions? Yes. Yes. Right. 
great question. Um, and I'll, since this is being taped, I'll reiterate that a question about Latino um, outreach, Latino, Latina outreach um, within our presbytery. Not a heck of a lot. Um, and that's actually an issue that I share some concern about. Um, my last presbytery, um, it's the Presbytery of Elizabeth in central New Jersey, and we had a large Latino population. And what we would hear from folks was, well, it doesn't really pay to do any outreach or to, to start forming churches because there really isn't, um, if you're Latino, you're either Catholic or evangelical. And reformed is not one of the languages they speak. <laughs> However, within Elizabeth Presbytery, there were several Spanish-speaking churches. So I can say that's not necessarily true. And there's definitely resources on the General Assembly level that are aimed at Spanish-speaking churches. Um, so that is an area that, that I'm interested in as far as new worshiping communities, and that's an area that we're starting to explore. Um, what I will tell you is, is I know that there are several um, churches that are doing some work around Latino, Latina programming. Um, one of them, the Rockville Church, right smack dab in the middle of Montgomery County, um, had a program uh, for the last couple of summers called um, The Umbrella, and it was a program for children to learn how to speak English. So it was sort of like ESL for kids. Um, it was offered as sort of a, a day camp thing during the summer. Um, I was able to go to their final uh, celebration. It was a lot of fun. One of the neat things is, is the children are also um, requested um, if they could bring their grandparents, not their parents, but their grandparents to also participate in some of this. So it was a little back and forth. Um, so there's been some work around that. Um, certainly the work that Church of the Covenant is doing with um, working with um, migrant folk is, is another way. But I, I think that there's definitely bandwidth, um, certainly in, in Montgomery County as well as I think Fairfax, I've looked at the numbers and they're fairly, they're fairly higher rising, that we might be able to do something more around that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting. I, I, the Immigrant Ministry Network meets regularly. We have um, a fall retreat, and so we were on retreat together, and I was you know, trying to figure out from the pastors and the leadership there you know, what their issues were, and it's amazing. Um, see if you recognize any of these. Um, it's hard to get people to commit to be on committees or to do work. Um, they're really running into issues with their children regarding sports programming. Right? Does this sound familiar? It's like, oh my goodness, you came to America and guess what? <laughs> you inherited our problems. De several decades ago, we would say that, that, um, that the Presbyterian Church would say that it was the immigrant congregations that were going to save the church. It was those churches that we were going to invest a lot of money in because those were the ones that were going to end up being the, 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 the larger church. And what we found is that's not necessarily the case. And part of it is, is because of our culture is set up in such a way, it's not real conducive to being people of faith, as you probably know. Um, and it certainly is hard to be a church in this day and age. So we've got to figure out ways of, of not only reaching out to some of our communities, like, like you said, our Latino, Latinas, we're, 
we're getting a, a large number of what we would call nuns, N-O-N-E-S, they've never had church. Um, not nuns like, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so not just them though, but, but a lot of our communities are finding more and more that people are just unchurched, you know? Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Um, single digit, uh, you know, I, uh, 25 years, my, unfortunately, my history is not as long. Uh, um, I would say you're probably talking double digits, um, but I think low double digits. That number's going to increase exponentially in the next five years. I, I personally project that we're probably going to close about five churches in the next five years. Uh, and that's based on my next blessings conversations with, with congregations. And, and these are churches that are, there are a couple of things. Either the demographics outside the walls have changed and the demographics inside have not. That's a classic issue, right? That's that Latino-Latino piece, right? If you're a church in an area and everyone around you speaks Spanish, guess what? You've got a limited life expectancy. Um, so there's that. Um, sometimes there's been mismanagement that has caused problems um, and or a church just becomes so closed. Um, sadly, a number of the churches are D.C. churches. Um, one of our, our congregations is one of our historic black Presbyterian churches, which has just got this huge, incredible history. But as I sat around the table with session members, I found most of them were driving at least 10 miles, 10 D.C. miles, to get to church. There's no way that church is ever going to grow because how are you going to convince somebody else to do that? You're doing that because you've got family or you've got some sort of long connection or history with the church. That's a real hard sell to somebody that you know from work to, to make that kind of a drive on a Sunday morning on a chance. So, um, and, and they're at the point where they're beginning to recognize that. It's sad. The other issue that we have is we have several churches that are looking at leading the denomination. Um, we've got three churches that are currently in conversation, we call it discernment, about whether or not to leave this denomination, and primarily it's over the ordination and marriage of um, gay and lesbian people. So, yes? Every presbytery is very different. Um, we have not had anyone leave yet. We are very close, um, and I'm not telling tales out of school at this point. The Centerville Church, which is one of our more recent churches, that's a church that, that was only formed about 30 years ago, um, has made a, a lot of progress in our discernment progress to, to leave this denomination. And um, Leadership Council, which is the governing um, body of the Presbytery when the Presbytery is not in session. Uh, they're also the policy setters. Um, have taken a fairly firm, yeah, no, stance. Um, the sense being that, you know, especially with this church where it's only been around for 30 years, but, you know, we invested a lot of money in getting that church up and running. And 
you know, it's not just the money that we've invested, but if they leave, we leave, we lose that relationship. We also lose the per capita, we lose the building, we lose a whole bunch of other things. So um, the, I, I, I can't disclose what, what the amount is at this point because it hasn't been agreed upon, but it's a significant sum. Um, and uh, leadership council and staff have basically said, no, we're, we're going to make this hard. Um, no, um, the discernment process is they are allowed to split if they go to another reformed body. And so where they are going, um, where this particular church is looking is this new denomination called ECHO. Um, ECHO doesn't actually stand for anything I found out. I kept trying, evangelical covenant. It's, um, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's an even more evangelical expression of the church. They do ordain women, but they will not ordain gays and lesbians, and they certainly will not do um, same-sex marriages. It is a, a denomination that is increasing in number, um, but that's easy if you've already got congregations ready to join. You know, it's not like building from the ground up. Um, and there's a couple of other options out there as well, Presbyterian Church of America, and, and you know, each congregation will be deciding where they go. Um, one of the things that we're very clear about is, is you know, if you transfer to this reformed denomination, you can't, if you leave that denomination within the next, oh, I don't know, 20 years, um, that money comes back to us because we're willing to release you to a sister denomination. We are not willing to allow you to become independent. Um, and again, part of that is, is honoring the people that built that church and invested their time and energy. Absolutely. They did a while a while ago, right? Yep. Okay. Any other? Yes. Great question, and it's an ongoing dance. Um, so, for instance, it's a no. It's it is something that is on my desk every single day. Um, so, we do relax in certain areas, but not in all. So for instance, um, in order to become a chartered congregation, there needs to be certain things in place. And we know that immigrant congregations are able to do this because we've seen them do it. But for fellowships, it can be a little bit more relaxed. Um, there are still requirements for incoming clergy to make sure that they're reformed. Um, again, there's a little wiggle room there, and, and that is talked about on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, however, um, we do insist that um, the immigrant fellowship have a council that is elected. Um, they don't have a session because, because they're not chartered. They can't have um, ruling into teaching elders yet. Um, so they have a council and that those folks make decisions, um, that the, the power is invested in that elected body, so it's, it's close to our polity. But there's also some understanding that there's some cultural stuff at play. So one of our churches, for instance, um, is a Ghanaian church. And um, they have a, a session that makes all the decisions, but there's also a men's group and a women's fellowship group 
that are very important. And so what we've been trying to do is getting the council to understand that yes, they have the power to make these decisions, but they need to be in conversation. They need to honor some of those other groups. So that's, I don't know if that answers your question or not. There's some wiggle room, not a lot. <laughs> Okay. Sure. Right, right. Understood. So, and, and different churches do different things. So, um, what we're trying to do here in this presbytery is to lean towards intercultural, okay? Not multicultural, but intercultural meaning your worship and style, you change me just as much as I change you, right? So if you go to, for instance, Silver Spring, you'll find a huge Cameroonian presence there. And the music and the worship is very Cameroonian, although there are folks like me sitting in the pews as well. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. I know you're at time. Thank you, thank you. I, again, I'm so sorry I did not get this up and running. And Dennis, thank you so much for trying. <laughs>